Amen, amen. Thanks, Thurp. Oh, what a joy it is to be together today in the building together for those of us that are here. And thank you for joining us online as well if you're watching uh, Worshiping from Your Own Home. If you don't know me, my name is Mike McAvoy. I'm the Director of University Ministries here with UPC. Uh, Chris and myself get the joy of working with our college students here uh, in this city uh, and around the neighborhood. So uh, like Emily, who did a fantastic job sharing earlier, there's a lot of college students and we love how much this church loves and cares for uh, the college students. Hey, even though it's great to be in the building, for all of us that are able to be here, I'm also just, I want to point out, we're super thankful for our media team that works so hard to be able to give us a great online worship opportunity. Uh, thank you to them. Let's give it up for that team there that does that. If you're, if you're worshiping from home, if you're worshiping from home, there's so many people uh, that are behind the scenes making that happen. And I'm thankful for all of us that are able to worship from home, especially thankful that it provides the opportunity for my family to be able to worship uh, from home as well. And if you don't know me, uh, here's a picture of my family. This is my wife, Rachel, and myself. We just celebrated our 10-year anniversary this summer. Um, and this is us at a wedding last weekend. And these are two of our daughters here. Pictured is uh, Kyrie, who I'm holding on the right, uh, who just turned 16 months old, and Jojo, who is nine months old. Uh, and they're both, well, crawling, running around. It's, uh, it's hard to sleep in the house right now, but it's fantastic either way. It's actually really fun because they're both at a place right now where when they see me, like on TV, like, uh, you know, in church here, they'll point at the TV when they hear me and see me and say, dad, dad. And so I get to go home today to a picture of them uh, watching and, and pointing at dad, which is fun. Here's another picture of them, just because I know you wanted to see more pictures of my kids. Who doesn't? Uh, but they have on their fall colors. They are getting ready for pumpkin season. Uh, it definitely is pumpkin season. We are right in the middle of the fall. You don't have to go outside for very long to realize it is fall. It is the middle of October. Okay, and that's what brings us here today. In fact, as we think about it being October 10th, I've been thinking a lot, even leading up to today, that I feel like preaching today for me was really spirit-led. Felt that way. I mean, this is a weekend where the dogs, football team has a bye weekend. Okay, they don't play. And the Seahawks played on Thursday night football this week. So there's no distractions for me. And I did not lose my voice on Saturday night yelling at the Husky football team. So that is just great news. I'm ready to be here this morning. I hope you're ready too. I feel like God has something. I also feel like it's very spirit ordained that I get to talk about uh, what we're talking about today. Um, it's something I care about a lot. And I'm really excited about continuing on a series that, that Pastor George started last week. It's an eight-week series that we are going through uh, this fall. And if you weren't here last week, uh, Pastor George started this series um, called Not Sure. Okay, looking at different ways that we may not be sure or have doubts or questions about God and what the Bible teaches. And it's supposed to be a place where we can bring some of those questions and the doubts that we have. Now this hits me personally because I grew up in a church culture where you just kind of were expected to trust God all the time. And there wasn't a lot of space given for actually being able to, to doubt and wrestle with things when you didn't see things add up. And so we'd, you'd experience, I would experience personal pain or hardship and, and wonder, you know, what does that mean? What does that mean about God? Or I'd look out at the world and see the, the pain and the oppression of the world and, and internally think, hey, is, is God real? Does he exist? Does he care about this? Why doesn't he do something about what's going on in the world? And a lot of different questions I would wrestle with, but there wasn't really a space. I was kind of uh, confronted often with like, hey, 
Good Christians just believe. Good Christians just trust and don't doubt. But then I started looking at the Bible a lot more. And I started seeing these people like Abraham and, and Moses and the Virgin Mary, who when, when, when they were face to face with God or an angel from God, doubt whether God is really going to show up in the way that he says he will, the promises of God. And all of a sudden, I found some of these people in the Bible much more relatable. In fact, one of my favorite passages in the Bible comes from Mark chapter 9, where a man comes to Jesus. And he has a, he has a son who has an evil spirit in him. And uh, he wants Jesus to heal his son. And Jesus says, anything is possible for the one who believes. The man responds, he says, I do believe. Help me in my unbelief. I relate so much to this man that made what, what, what seems kind of like a contradiction on the surface. Both belief and unbelief is actually showing us that, that our beliefs, our faith in God and the doubts that we have can coexist. I realize that owning my doubts doesn't disqualify the faith that I have. And I'm excited to keep us going in this series today. Before we get into the specific uh, topic we're going to talk about today, I want to spend a little bit of time today talking about something that George brought up uh, a little bit last week in his message, and that is the idea of deconstruction of our faith. Okay, now if you're new to this idea, this is a term that's, that's pretty popular right now. It's, it's used quite a bit uh, right now, and it's not necessarily a new thing, but it is being packaged more in a, in a different way right now around this term deconstruction. And we may hear that a lot from people, people that are deconstructing their faith. And it's not necessarily a new thing. And I also want to talk about the fact that it's not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, there are some, some really healthy uh, ways we can do this. And so I want to take a little bit of time just to, to talk about that this morning. Now, psychologists talk about three phases of human psychological development, okay, that are about construction, deconstruction, and then reconstruction, okay? And the construction that we start to have in our life as we are just growing up in the, in the household that we are a part of, we are starting to develop our own norms, our worldview, our values, the things that mean something to us. And then at some point, we, we kind of go out into the world. A lot of times that's during college. And we see that there are other people that might think a lot differently than us. They might have different values, different uh, things that are right and wrong for them. And all of a sudden, we start to wrestle ourselves with, do I believe the things I believe because they're the things I believe, or are they just the things that I was around? Okay, simply put, deconstruction is the process of reevaluating our core beliefs or evaluating whether or not that the religious system, the belief system that we might have grown up in, is what we really embrace and believe. The things I have been taught and the cultures I've been in, are they the things that are true to me, or are they just the things that I was around? Okay, when people deconstruct, most of the time, there is something in there that needs to be deconstructed. And there's actually a really healthy way to do this. In fact, it's the way that we see Jesus do this. Okay, it's where we critique the culture of the church by looking at the Bible. Jesus does this in his teachings, like in the Sermon on the Mount, he does this a lot. And in, in a lot of his encounters with the religious leaders of the time, um, he's pointing out what they're doing is not actually reflecting the intention of God. And so he's deconstructing some of the church norms with the Bible. 
Uh, it's the way that Martin Luther and Calvin and the Reformers did it. In fact, one of the most famous positive examples of deconstruction comes from Frederick Douglass, okay, who looked at the way Christianity was being taught from slave owners to enslaved people, okay, when he famously said this quote. He said, between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. So wide that to receive the one as good, pure, and holy is of necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt, and wicked. To be the friend of the one is of necessity to be the enemy of the other. He says, I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial, and hypocritical Christianity of this land. Indeed, I can see no reason but the most deceitful one for calling the religion of this land Christianity. It's deconstruction at its finest right there. He didn't take the Christianity that he was given and, and just believe everything about it, but he looked at the Bible, saw who, who Jesus is, what his values were, and, and developed a worldview out of that that did not align with the Christianity that he was being taught. It's incredible deconstruction here from a man who was previously enslaved. But there's another type of deconstruction as well. It's where we use the world to critique Scripture's authority over the church. And it's less of a, a, a healthy way of doing something when we come to the Bible with prior moral assumptions where we have chosen to redefine good and evil for ourselves. And then when we see that Scripture may not line up okay, with the values that we have created, we start to look at the Scripture and go, well, I guess I can't believe that. It doesn't align with the values I have. It's the same thing we see in the first deconstruction in the Bible, which happens in Genesis chapter 3, okay, in the garden, where God has created okay, good and evil. He's created a lot of great things uh, for humanity, and he's created one tree to stay away from, and he's created boundaries, and he has decided for us, hey, what is good and what is evil? And we as humans said, we want to be the ones who decide what good and evil are. We don't want to trust God in what he says. It feels like a restriction, but God has created something here for our freedom and our health. But instead of trusting that, we're going to develop, I want to, I want to eat from the tree because I really want to be the one to decide what good and evil is. Come on, do we not relate to this? I know no one wanted to give an amen because it kind of like exposes our heart. But no, this is, this is a very human nature of us. We want to be the ones who decide what good and evil are. And while I believe that this is an unhealthy type of deconstruction, using culture to critique the word of God, it makes total sense why it's happening so much right now. Especially when we think about what the main triggers of deconstruction are. And so I want to take a look at some of the main ones here. And there are a few uh, that I really uh, relate to from a list by Dr. Eric Mason, okay, of what he would say in a little more of an extensive list about what, what the main triggers are for deconstruction. I want to go through that a little bit. Uh, number one, the problem of evil and suffering in the world. This has been going on for a long time. This is not new, but that has made us question. How can, we, how can a good God allow so much evil to happen in the world? 
Okay, church hurt. That's a big one for people. Most people who deconstruct have some level of personal hurt. We've been hurt in some way and it makes us really think about uh, what our values are. Legalism in our family. Spiritual, emotional, and physical abuse lead to this. Broken trust and moral failure in Christian leadership. It's really difficult when the people Okay, that are helping us understand God more when we see moral failure where their life and what they're doing, it feels incongruent with what they're teaching on. And all of a sudden we wrestle with, oh my gosh, this was like a hero of the faith for me. I grew up with people going to leadership conferences and, and reading authors who, you know, the more we see some, some people in, in uh, cases of sexual abuse and, and other things going on in, in our world with some of these Christian heroes really makes us you know, go, what does that mean? What does that mean for me? That these are some of the people I look to to help me understand who God is. Western imperialism, personal suffering that we may experience when we're confronted with questions that we can't answer and the faith not adding up, and simply a desire to throw certain moral restrictions off. Here's the thing I'll say about it, and this is my main point for talking so long about it this morning is that a lot of young people are finding it unsafe to go through this process of deconstruction within the church because they're not being given the space and support to wrestle with and engage with these things. And if that's not you, if you're not going through it, just know it's happening all around. And if we can't provide a safe space to actually engage the doubts and, and, and the ways that, that we struggle, then we're just taking those things outside of the church. Okay, we're going we're gonna to deal with them somehow. We're going to engage them somehow. But when we take them outside the church, sometimes we're thinking, oh, we'll go outside the church and then we'll figure it out. And then we can bring ourselves back into Christian community once we have everything figured out. But as we go outside of, of Christian community, the, the world out there is not pushing us back into the church to find our identity and value back here. But in fact, actually saying, hey, we're going to go ahead and help you be okay with everything about who you are out here. And so most people are not returning to the church. They're not re-engaging in a Christian community. And so it's so important for us to have safe places to bring our doubts, questions, and the places that we are not sure and know that we will still be valued as we wrestle with what we believe. Does that make sense? Thank you. I appreciate that. Now I want to add that the goal is not to stay in deconstruction forever. Okay, it's a middle part of this process, but it is an important thing to go through a part of the process if we want to start a journey of real authentic faith. It's helpful in that journey. Okay, now this morning we're going to engage one question that is out there. In fact, it's more of a statement than a question, but the statement we're going to talk about this morning is, I am not sure if Jesus could be God. Okay, it's something we wrestle with a lot. Is Jesus really God? Some of us might believe things about Jesus. We might believe that he was a prophet or that he was a good teacher or he was just a likable person person that walked the earth and did a lot of good things and helped people out, but I don't know if I can fully buy that he was God. Okay, this is a claim that a lot of people make, which is why it's an important question for us to look at today. And so today we're going to ask the question, what did Jesus say about himself? Okay, there's a lot of things that the Bible uh, points to of, of the work that he did and the things that people said about him, but what did Jesus say about himself? And to do so, we're going to turn to Mark chapter 14 today. You can follow along if you'd like. We're going to sit in Mark chapter 14. We're going to look here at an account of what Jesus says about who he is. <coughs> now, as we dive into the text today, I want to set the stage for us of what's going on. Okay, this takes place the Thursday before Easter. It's late at night. Okay, and Jesus Christ, we find Jesus Christ on trial. 
Now, Jesus had been betrayed by one of his good friends. He had been drugged into court, seized by an angry mob. And now he finds himself in the Jewish high court known as the Sanhedrin. Okay, there are a growing number of elite people who hate Jesus. They're trying to expedite the judicial process as quickly as they can. They're set on on convicting him and getting him handed over to the Roman government uh, where they can execute capital punishment on Jesus. Okay, and so they're going against some of the social norms of the time. One of them is having this trial so late at night. But you can picture in here people filling in, packing the courts. The entire Sanhedrin was here, which is 70 council members seated high in a semicircle around Jesus and many others. Okay, the court is being led by a guy named Joseph Caiaphas. Okay, he's a man of great power who was presiding over this court case as the chief justice. And this trial that Jesus entered into was not a fair trial, okay? There was nothing just about this. This was a situation that was set up intentionally to convict him as fast as possible. And so that's where we find ourselves as we dive right in to some eyewitness testimony. And here we go in verse 53 of Mark chapter 14. It says this, And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes were assembled. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, and their witness did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet not even so did their testimony agree. Okay, so they're looking for two or three testimonies that line up. That's what they really need to bring a conviction against Jesus. Their agenda is very clear of what they want, but they cannot even get their stories to line up straight. Okay, and so at this point, you got to picture a really tired, maybe frustrated, probably a guy that just wants to go to bed in Joseph Caiaphas at this point. And so he, he kind of goes away from the, the witness testimony and goes straight to Jesus. We're going to go straight to the source here, and we're going to try to get a conviction as, as quickly as we can. Um, and so uh, he, he goes right here in, in verse 60. It says, The high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he was silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Okay, now here's where things really start to get cooking in this trial. Okay, the question is asked, Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of the Blessed? Now, this is not a a direct claim to be God, but he's asking, are you the direct descendant of God? And he's starting to circle around this main question. He's putting out the bait here for Jesus, essentially saying, are you God? Are you claiming that you are God? Now, if Jesus wasn't God, this would be the time to get out. Okay, if he had lived his whole life and he had been developing followers and people had loved him at times and hated him at other times, but when he gets to this moment and he's asked, and if he goes, you know what, this whole thing has been a sham, this is the time to get out because Jesus understands the ramifications of his words here. 
that there's a, this is a big deal, the claim to be God here. This is punishable by death. He knows that if he st- says yes to this, this question, that it's leading to his execution. I would have thought maybe if he wasn't God, it was the time to get out. But instead, what we hear from Jesus is him say, I am. He says, I am. And I've got to imagine at this point, the court is silent. People are, 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 are wanting to know, what, what is he going to say? I can't believe he just said, I am. Remember, this is the religious court. Okay, these are legal experts in Old Testament law. They knew the Torah front and back. When Jesus says, I am, they know that he is making a direct reference okay, to the God of the Old Testament who, who appears to Moses in a burning bush. And when Moses asks, who are you? Who should I say sent me? That God responds and says, I am. I am who I am. God says, tell them I am sent you. And Jesus responds in the same way, saying, I am. And people at this point got to be on the edge of their seat. What is he saying? So where does Jesus go from here? He adds on this line. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, if you know your Old Testament, this is a bold claim by Jesus. And the people here knew their Old Testament. They knew that he was ripping this line directly from Daniel chapter 7. It's a line that speaks about God himself coming to judge and to rule and to reign. They knew that this was an explicit prophecy of God himself coming to the earth. And they knew that by Jesus identifying himself as the son of man from Daniel 7, that this is an explicit claim to his divinity. Jesus is saying, with no ambiguity here, I am God. This is the claim that gets Jesus killed. Now the follow-up here in, uh, in verse 63 says, And the high priest tore his garments and said, Why do we still need witnesses? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemn him as deserving death. They condemn him to death every single day one of them. A lot of people might say that Jesus never claimed to be God, that he was a good teacher, a prophet even, but not God. The problem with that claim is that if if Jesus never would have claimed to be God, he never would have gotten killed. People didn't kill God because, or sorry, kill Jesus because he was a good teacher. People didn't kill him because he fed the poor. They didn't kill him because he walked on water or knew the scripture so well. They killed him because of his claim to be God. You can say that he wasn't God. You might not believe that he is God. That's fine. But he's very blatantly claiming to be God. And so if he isn't God, Jesus is a big time liar. In fact, I love the way that C.S. Lewis says in, in a famous line in, in Mere Christianity, okay, when he's talking about this and he says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. When they say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said, would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic 
on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. He says, you can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at your feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. End quote. When Jesus says he is God, we can no longer say that he is a moral teacher. We can say he's a complete madman. We can say that he's a liar or that his claim of being God is true. There's really not a lot of room for anything in between here. He doesn't leave that for us. Jesus doesn't speak in parables here. He makes it very clear. He's claiming to be God and that's the claim that his enemies crucified him for. So Jesus is claiming he's God. His enemies know that he's claiming to be God. And his friends back that up with the same thing. Okay, and this is all over the New Testament. But, but, but specifically, one example I love is the book of John. Okay, the whole book of John. As John writes his book, he gives seven miracles that Jesus does. Miracles that are all pointing specifically to the work of him being God. And then he uses seven I am statements that Jesus makes. Seven words, again modeling the Old Testament. God in the burning bush saying I am. His claims to be God through seven words. His works to be God through his seven miracles. And then John ends his book at the end of chapter 20. Okay, after writing for for 20 chapters, he ends his book uh, in, in chapter 20, verse 30, by saying, the disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. See, I've written everything. Everything I've written has one purpose, that you may know that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. John also leaves no guessing to why he is writing this book, that Jesus is God. And if we choose to believe that, that has some serious implications on the way that we think and live our life. Now, if you're here this morning and you do not identify as a Christian, first of all, welcome. We love that you're here. Very excited that you're with us. Second of all, these religious leaders, I want to let you know, they are not a great example of what to do. Okay, They come into this courtroom already having their mind made up. And now they're just looking for any shred of evidence that can can prove what, what they already believe. There's no changing their minds. You know, I hope that's not us today. I hope we'll at least consider who Jesus is and consider what that might mean for us. Or at least come to this space and engage the doubts and the questions that you have. We will always have doubts for sure. My hope and prayer is that this would be a safe place where we could wrestle with those things together. Now, if you haven't said yes to Jesus in your life, I want to invite you to investigate further for yourself about this claim that he makes to be God. Because if we believe that, that has some real impact on our life. So if you're joining us online and you want to talk to one of our pastoral staff about just who Jesus is, 
And what that might mean for you, I invite you to click the link in the chat or go to upc.org Jesus. And we have people that would love to engage in conversation with you. If you're here in person and want to talk more, please come down to the front after we're done. We'd love to talk about who Jesus is. And if you're here today or at home online with us and you do believe that even in the midst of the doubts that you might have and the wrestling and the questions that you do still believe that Jesus Christ truly is God. I don't have a, a grand conclusion for us today, but rather I want to finish with a question. And that is this, if Jesus Christ truly is God, and if he truly is your God, how is that impacting your life? How is that impacting the way that we think, the way that we live, and the way that we treat others? Let me pray. Lord Jesus, God, I thank you for your words. God, we appreciate the way you sometimes spoke in, in, in parables or, or ways that we really had to dive in to understand. But God, we also appreciate the clarity here of Jesus' claims of, 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 who, of who you are. God, and so we come today not just hoping to, to maybe admit that you are God, Lord. But I would, my prayer would be that, that we're able to discover what life with you would look like, that even as John says here in chapter 20, that, that we would know you are God, and then we would discover life in you, the incredible life that you have for us, Lord. And so, um, God, would you be filling us with your spirit? Would we be experiencing your power and your presence a little more in our lives today as we wrestle with who you really might be and who you might be to us? Lord, we thank you for your text and for who you are. We love you, Jesus. We pray all this in your name. Amen.